Welcome to the universe of trusting divinity, hosted by yours truly, Wendy Von Dam, aka Ms. Divinity. Here at Trusting Divinity, we explore how to do life in the messy middle. May you put down perfection and be clothed in the grace of Christ as you open your heart and mind to a life of possibility, one that you love beyond your wildest dreams. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. Hey you, welcome back to Trusting Divinity, a sacred and holy space of love and acceptance for whatever your current messy middle is. A place of soul rejuvenation, of basking and resting in Jesus. A place of learning and growing together in grace. In today's episode, Adam Miller and I are diving into part two of our discussion on his book, Original Grace. Adam is a professor of philosophy at Collin College in McKinney, Texas. He earned a BA in comparative literature from BYU and an MA and PhD in philosophy from Villanova University. He is the author of more than 10 books, including Letters to a Young Mormon, An Early Resurrection, and Original Grace. He and his wife, Gwen, have three children. Today's discussion begins with us hearing from Adam what he specifically does to intertwine his relationship with Jesus Christ into his daily actions. So, without further ado, here is part two of our conversation on original grace. If by chance you missed part one, feel free to circle back and listen to episode 24. Throughout this conversation, I would love to try to intertwine. How do we actually put him on? How, like, that's what you're talking about is having this relationship in him and becoming a part of him. And so what does that look like in our everyday life? What do you do in your life to, to intertwine that relationship into your daily actions? Yeah, that commandment to, to love, right? Regardless. Uh, of whether someone presents themselves as as friend or enemy, uh, and a six year old's not a bad example <laughs> of somebody who can who can present themselves as an enemy, uh, having been the father of you know three six year olds myself. Uh, that commandment to love, though, right? That applies not just to your daughter, but it applies to you. It applies to yourself, right? It applies to you in your failures to love your daughter to love yourself nonetheless, uh, where loving means to give what good is needed, right? Either the good that your daughter needs or the good that you in your own weakness in attempting to love her needs, right? It's it's always tempting to slip back into thinking that, okay, good, now love is the universal commandment. Oh, well, now I'm failing at that commandment too. <laughs> Right? regularly regularly <laughs> right which is just another way though of saying of course that uh, uh that i don't deserve to be loved that i'm not applying the commandment unconditionally because i've accepted myself from the rule because i'm failing to love unconditionally uh though that of course is not is not how it's meant to work 
Right. I think on the ground, this is something that I really only get to at the very at the very end of the book in some ways. When we turn when we try to turn the picture of love right side up, right? When we put grace first, when we treat it not as the backup plan, but as plan A. Part of what happens too is that how we think about forgiveness turns itself upside down. But it's easy to think, uh, it's easy to go to church for decades and, and think that the basic point of church is to engage in practices that will finally, maybe, fingers crossed, get God to forgive me for being who and what I am and for having done what I've done. Not that I don't need to be forgiven, uh, but that's not, as best I can tell, the point of religion. That's not the point of showing up at church on Sunday. God is ready and willing dying literally dying right already to, died to forgive me yeah to forgive me for these things uh but my being forgiven is contingent on my willingness to engage in the actual work of religion which is forgiving now, jesus is very clear about this in the new testament if you want to be forgiven there's only one thing that you need to do forgive right you need to you need to step into that work of forgiving and then once you're part of it you will yourself be forgiven and as a very practical matter, I think this is this is what it looks like to participate in grace. This is what it looks like to to practice love unconditionally. It looks like continually forgiving myself and my family and the world for being what it is and not what I needed it to be. And also continually forgiving me and my family and the world for then needing me to give it what it needs right? Both letting go of what my expectations were for what it ought to be like. What I wanted and, it and to be. Then, yeah, what I wanted it to be. <laughs> and then stepping wholeheartedly into the work of giving what is now needed, regardless of what I thought I wanted. So beautifully stated. <clears throat> um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess... I didn't get too far off track as I'm looking at chapter three. Your title is that's because all the that's... all the chapters are just about grace. It's... <laughs> we can just talk about grace and we'll be fine. We don't need to follow the script. Um, so one of my favorite quotes um, that I've ever seen on grace is this: "It says, expect to give yourself grace and be surprised by perfection, rather than expecting perfection and then feeling obligated to extend grace." And I just think that that is, as we step into grace and we see the world right side up, how God intended it to be, um, and we accept what is, we open ourselves to God's perfection. One, one of my favorite philosophers is a, a, um, a 17th century philosopher named Spinoza. And Spinoza's definition of perfection is this. Spinoza says, by perfection, I mean reality. <laughs> uh, and there's really there's really something to that, I think, where uh, the inherent perfection of things, counting from their own natures, not in light of my wants or expectations, is precisely what follows uh, and what comes into focus when I'm willing to love them and forgive them. Right, when I'm willing to see them for what they are, accept them for what they are, affirm them and care for them in what they need, then the perfection of what they are shines through. Uh, 
but that that comes that shines through only in light of my willingness to to buckle down and actually obey the commandment to, to love everyone and everything. So, so I'm just, I, I've wondered this a lot myself, because I think sometimes we think that there's this celestial realm out there that is somehow magically more perfect than where we currently exist. Mm-hmm. And, and by perfection in that sense, I mean, like all of a sudden, all the suffering goes away and everyone is healed and, and I think I remember working with a coach and she said, what are you so afraid of? Cause I had so much fear in me. She's mm-hmm. like, what are you so afraid of? And I remember being like, I'm so afraid that I'm not going to make it. <laughs> like I'm so afraid that there's not going to be a seat in the celestial place for me. Um, but the more that I have experienced life and the more that I've learned, I can experience celestial days right here right now in this existence pretty regularly if I choose in and so I I we don't really know the answer I don't know what your thoughts are on it I don't know what the celestial world is actually like um but is there a way to open ourselves up to more of heaven here now yeah yeah I think so absolutely one of Joseph Smith's most radical ideas was that the celestial kingdom is this. It's here, right? This earth uh, is and will be the celestial kingdom. This is the basic thrust of Jesus' own teaching of the gospel in the New Testament. Jesus' own teaching of the gospel in the New Testament has nothing to do with people escaping earth to finally safely arrive in heaven. He never says anything remotely about any of those about any of those subjects. Everything that Jesus has to say in the New Testament is how is about how the kingdom of God is arriving. Right? You don't go there. It's coming here. Right? And in yeah. fact, in some ways, Jesus says, I'm here to announce that it's already here. And you can participate in it. You can participate in it or not. Uh, but regardless, it's here. It's now. It's me, he's saying. Uh, and the instructions that he lays out then. Right in terms of how to participate in that kingdom, the kind of thing that we get in the Sermon on the Mount, especially uh, those are that's the that's the short list, right, of things to do in order to participate in that kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, right here and now, in this world, in this life. That's what he's offering, right? Not salvation from this world, salvation in this world. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Um. So. I have, um, the other day I reached out to a friend specific. I was just, I was just was curious what other people would want to ask you when I had this opportunity uh-huh. to have this conversation. Right. So I asked different people, like, what would you want to ask? So I asked a friend if she'd read the book and she said, I've started, but I haven't finished. And then she said, and sometimes after reading his book, when I go back to the book of Mormon, I don't feel like they are congruent with each other. So I'm struggling to understand how it, aligns with the Book of Mormon. And I think that you address this even in chapter four, you bring it up and you address it. And um, you talk about how the logic of original sin is interwoven, even in the scriptures. Um, Maybe sometimes we even feel it or find it in general conference talks. I don't, I don't know what your perspective is on that. Um, I think that what you're 
what you're addressing is the process of revelation and that God meets his people where they are and in an understanding that they can receive at that point in time. And you quote Doctrine and Covenants section one, verse 24, um, revelations are always given unto the Lord's servants in their weakness after the manner of their language that they might come to understanding. So, and then you remind us, hey, go back to Jesus. Like, what did Jesus say, right? Learn from Jesus. And I think we find that throughout the Book of Mormon as well. But what is your process for discerning truth? So many times in my journey, I just look to heaven and I'm like, can you help me understand what is true? <laughs> I don't, I don't know how to deal with all this, these levels of understanding and everybody being at different places. And, and so how do I know what is truth? So your process for discerning truth, how do you divide the light from the dark? Um, how do you step into spiritual autonomy and follow leadership, follow the prophet, follow the leaders in the church, even though I don't, does that make sense? Sometimes I have to remind myself general conference is for the general people. And the prophet has told me to seek personal revelation. And so I can do both of those things. Yeah. You have to do both of those things at the at the end of the day. No one can have a testimony for you. No one can have a relationship with God for you. Your value to the church, the substance of your participation in the church itself will depend on the quality of your personal relationship with God. Uh, those things are not, they're not separable. I suspect, you know, your friend's story is not unusual. Uh, I've, you know, I've never been under any illusion that, that my work is for everyone or will be useful for everyone. I'm often surprised that it's useful for anyone. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm often surprised by the kind of, you know, the, to the degree that I, to the degree that is given, right, the kind of positive response that, that my work is, is greeted with uh, in some ways as unusual as it is. If, if your friend uh, ever has to choose between me and the Book of Mormon, she should choose the Book of Mormon, of course every single time uh, that's what i would do if i were her if i had to choose between me and the book of mormon i would choose the book of mormon but i think what she's trying to say and i would love your take on this is yeah. and i think we see it in the old testament as well right it it's it's how you're trying to change how we see justice because mm. sometimes god looks like this very maybe angry god coming in and wiping yeah. out um whole populations of people right i mean with noah yeah. he wiped out the whole earth um and so we just have this idea about justice meaning punishment maybe right and so sometimes it looks like in the book of mormon that justice is punishment and so how do you i don't know what the right word is because I guess what God is doing in those moments though, right. Is giving what is mm -hmm. needful yeah. because what is needful for those people is for him to wipe them out and like bring them home and remind them a few things before they <laughs> carry right. on with their progression. <laughs> yeah. This is something that that's become more and more obvious to me over the years as I've tried harder and harder to think about grace. That how we think about God's grace is going to be inseparable from how we think about mm -hmm. the nature of justice. 
right? And it's it's this question in particular that that gets hard for us uh, to think about because we have a lot of baggage, right? We carry a lot of assumptions about the nature of justice that we've not only inherited from the broader Christian tradition, but but that inform the very fundament of uh, contemporary capitalism, right? Capitalism is all based around the idea that uh, that things have to be merited and earned and deserved. It's all about what you do or don't deserve uh, in contemporary capitalism, right? It's the very logic of original sin at the heart of our economy. Uh, but when we, when we, I think, step back to think more carefully about the nature of, of God's justice, the question is always what ultimately is at stake in his execution of justice? What's the, what's the purpose? What's justice aiming to accomplish? And I think pretty clearly on the Book of Mormon's own terms, the point of justice is to fulfill the demands of the law. And the question then is, what is it that the law demands? What is it that the law requires? And at the end of the day, I think it's irrefutable to claim that what the law requires is love. That what the law commands in every instance is love. Not only us, it's not just what God commands us to do, it's what God commands himself to do. It's the very imperative that God himself lives under, that commandment to love and to do what is good, and to give what is needed, regardless of what people do or don't deserve. Now, the other related question then is, uh, what does that look like? What shape does that take? If, I'm, if God disciplines me, uh, does that mean that he's returning evil for the evil that I've done? in which case God is doing evil. Uh, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, and it doesn't certainly doesn't seem to be a way of fulfilling the demands of the law, uh, which are always to, to do what is good and, and to love. Uh, if discipline is needed, that that is either, number one, an expression, I think, of God's love for me, the fact that that discipline comes from him, or it's just simply the natural consequence of my own stupid, foolish, evil actions. Uh, the very idea that God would have to punish me for evil seems to assume that my doing evil isn't evil in the first place, right? As if I could choose evil and it not get evil, <laughs> right? And then God would then have to intervene to add some evil on top of the evil that I already gave myself in order to punish me for it. Evil is always its own punishment, right? That's built in. But I'm doing that to myself. Right, I mean, God intervenes, right? It's 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 always, I think, as a as a way of attempting to leverage what I've done to some good, despite whatever evil uh, it brought about in the first place. And uh, on the ground, that can look messy and complicated, but I think I think we can be confident that God never does evil, even in return for evil, that He's intent on fulfilling the demands of His own law. And that this is both the point of his actions, the point of his son's atonement, uh, and the point of what he commands us to do. So I think it's about keeping, like, understanding that that the law, because I think sometimes, right, we think the law, I've been reading so much, and I just keep reading those things about Christ came to, like, get rid of the law of Moses. But I think some of us still want the law of Moses. Just tell me all the things I need to do to get there, Right. But, but yet we're being asked to raise to this higher law of love. Just discern what is needed and love people. 
And, and I loved your point of that does include ourselves. It does include, I have to give the grace to myself. And quite frankly, until I, from, from my own journey, the more I've been able to receive it for myself or the more that I've been able to accept it in my own world, it is so much easier to give to other people. Like once I've been able to tap into that and mm -hmm. forgive myself or love myself or in the midst of that argument with my child, recognize that, hey, I need, I need a moment to go gather myself so that I can be more present for her, right? And, and taking into consideration not only her needs, but my needs too, and what is needed for the greatest good of this situation. Um, so, so it's remembering that the law is actually love. The law isn't about the to-do list or the law isn't about even the 10 commandments per se, because there's this higher law that trumps all the other laws and that law is love. Yeah. Or at least, at least none of those laws are ever about deciding what someone deserves, right? The 10 commandments are never meant to be a measuring stick to decide, well, these people deserve my love because they kept them. And these people don't because they didn't, right? The 10 commandments are commandments for how to go about loving everyone, regardless of whether they do or don't deserve it. And it's always a question of the purpose to which we're putting the law, whether that law is itself a means of fulfilling the commandment to love, that is the commandment to grace, or whether we use the whether we use the law as a way of avoiding the very purpose of the law. Right? It's easy to use the law itself as an excuse for not loving other people or ourselves, which is exactly the opposite of the point of the law. Yeah, so beautiful. Um. Okay. Let's see. I don't know where we are. Um, let's talk about chapter seven for a minute. Um, the the theme or the the I know it's grace. The overarching theme is grace, but the sub theme is the atonement, right? And you break down the two different logics to help us see that the logic of original sin leads us to pit justice and grace against each other in opposition. You like. One is on one side and one is on the other side. Um, if we see through this lens of original sin, we think that the moral worth of an individual is judged on the basis of what they do or do not deserve to suffer, which is kind of what we've been talking about. But as we adopt the logic of original grace, we begin to see that justice actually is the work of relieving suffering, healing wounds and empowering people to actively do good. We begin to understand that natural consequences have no moral charge, that the worth that the moral worth of an individual is not based on what they do or do not suffer. From this view, we can see that justice and grace are actually on the same side of God's law. So um, I think that what you're getting at is that we've been seeing sin wrong. <laughs> or I don't know if wrong is the right word, right? But maybe there's some, some different insights that we can bring into sin. And um, my question is, would you say that all sinful acts are simply symptoms of a deeper core issue? And if yes, then what would you sum up that core issue to be? Yeah, all sinful acts are symptoms of the fact that we're sinners. Uh <laughs> that's the but, like your definition of sin, right? Is that we don't accept problem. God's love. Yeah. Yeah, and then right, so, what it means to be a sinner in general is to try to live in the world in a way that 
that divides the whole thing up in terms of what people do or don't deserve ourselves included, right? Which is a way of refusing the commandment to love everyone, which is what it means to be a sinner, right? To refuse the commandment to love. Because as Jesus himself teaches, right, that summarizes the whole, that summarizes the whole law. The whole law is to love God and, and to love everybody else. And if I'm using the law to divide the world up into people that I do or don't have to love, then then I'm using I'm using it to refuse the very essence of of justice and the law itself. And that's what it means to be a sinner, right? To to think about the world in this way, to think about other people this way, to think about myself in this way, and then to get trapped in that logic. And it's easy then as a sinner, as we're trying to get out of that logic of sin, to understand sin itself on those same terms. Right. We say, I've got to stop being a sinner. I'm going to go to church and I'll do all these things. And then maybe God will love me and I'll stop being a sinner. Uh, But that is itself, of course, a sinful way of thinking about it. It's just itself a symptom of our sinful way of of thinking about ourselves in the world transplanted into the context of of religion uh, with quite a bit of irony, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so fascinating when we see it this way, when we start to understand that sin is is simply whatever sin it is, right? Whether it's a pornography thing, whether whatever it is, whatever the sin is that we've chosen, it's it's a lack of receiving love. Like we don't feel loved. And so then we take this action to try to fill the hole. Mm-hmm. because we don't know how, like, I know that that's how I felt like in my heart, like there just was this hole. And like, I always, my limiting core belief was I'm not enough. I will never be enough. And God has been teaching me so much about, it's not about you being enough. Mm, yeah, <laughs> I created you just like you are. You're not, supp- you're not supposed to be enough on your own. Like that's, yeah. I, I, this is the plan. I made it this way so that you could, partner with Christ and know that he's enough. And I still remember, like, there's been so many times, right, that just this little message has come in from some random email or just so many confirmations of it has nothing to do with what I can do. It has everything to do with what Christ has already done. And my job is to step into that and to let him be enough moment by moment, shortcoming by shortcoming, weakness by weakness. Yeah, as sinners, we continually ask the wrong question and then don't understand God's answer when we get it. Right? As sinners, we continually think that everything is about being loved. That's a sinful way of of living, right? Thinking that it's about me being loved or not. Right? To be a Christian is to let go of that question altogether. To be a Christian is to stop asking point blank ever whether or not I deserve to be loved or am loved. Right? To be a Christian is to throw myself wholeheartedly into the work instead of loving, right? Not passive tense, am I loved? Active tense, how do I participate in loving? And once we stop asking that first question and learn how to exclusively ask the second question, then we're then our then our connection with God really sparks and really comes to life and and we find a whole new sort of life in Jesus that's filled with light and life that allows us to see the inherent perfection in both ourselves and other people and that empowers us to give what's needed regardless of what we do or don't think people deserve so beautiful i know that in my own life as i have 
just claimed that birthright, like that I am loved. It's like, it, that's given. That's just total, of course, like God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Um, of course we're loved. And as I have allowed myself to receive that, it's done exactly what you said. It's empowered me and strengthened me and expanded my capacity to just allow that love to flow out of me to others. Yeah. Yeah. We might, we might say something like love is never something that you have. It's only ever something that you do. If you do it, then you're a part of it. If you want to have it, you never will. It's not that kind of thing. Yeah. That's beautiful. All right, friend. That is where we are stopping for today. I really want to encourage you to take some time and just chew on and really digest what has been discussed today. Isn't this conversation delicious? (laughs) I find Adam's last statement so profound. He says, love is never something that you have. It's only ever something that you do. If you do it, then you are a part of it. If you want to have it, you never will. It's not that kind of a thing. My intent and hope in breaking this down into bite-sized digestible pieces is that you will have the time and space to really ponder and consider the profound yet simple messages of grace. Next week's episode is going to be different than you might expect. Of course, it seems like the most logical thing to do would be to insert part three on the discussion of original grace. But my heart fills God whispering that instead, I am supposed to share a special Christmas episode from my heart to yours. So until next week, all my love, Ms. Divinity. Now, I do have a quick ask before you go. Will you please help me share, share, share the grand adventures of trusting divinity? If you have had a friend, a family member, or a neighbor come to mind as you have listened to today's episode, please pass it along. Maybe, just maybe, they too could benefit as we seek to turn the world right side up and accept the original grace of God, Jesus Christ. My friend, even more, I would love to connect with and hear from you. What stood out to you in today's episode? What was your biggest aha and takeaway? You can send an email to Wendy with a Y at trustingdivinity.com or find me in the world of social media hash or handle at trusting divinity and share with me your insights you can hashtag trusting divinity too what piece of today's episode touched your heart in a profound way i would be honored to hold space for you and your dreams to hear about how you are personally putting into practice the principle of grace. So 
Don't forget to subscribe to the show and then join me in the next episode as I share with you the greatest gift I've yet to receive as I have come to understand the depths of Christ's atonement a little bit more. He, my friend, is the gift. Last but not least, please know that more details will be coming soon on how to join the Trusting Divinity community that is kicking off in February 2023. If you've been wondering what gift you would like to receive this Christmas season, I would like to propose this may be the perfect fit. The invitation, 12 months of accepting grace. 12 months of line upon line, grace upon grace, learning and growing as we move the knowledge of these intentions that's in our head down into our hearts, becoming new creatures. 12 months of taking time to simply be the majestic creation that God intended you to be. 12 months of connection and community with incredible like-minded souls. 12 months of feeling the feels, meeting yourself where you are in the messy middle with love and acceptance. 12 months, my friend, of joy, peace, and trust. Hey there, thanks for listening. If you have already accepted my invitation and are claiming me as your friend, I want to thank you in advance for posting a raving review on your favorite podcast platform. If by chance you are still a little unsure about this blossoming friendship, I invite you to simply stick around and keep listening.